excited to have everybody in here. Man, it feels good. It was really good. I told Esther when I was uh, preparing my message that I was going to open with like 20 jokes just so I could hear people laugh at them. Because, uh, man, it's really tough when you're as hilarious as I am and there's nobody here to laugh at you. It's just it's almost cruel. I'm kidding. We are uh, jumping into um, week two of our series called Fixer Upper. And uh, instead of starting with jokes, I thought I would, uh, I found some tweets for people who have uh, tweeted about HGTV design shows. So if you've never watched an HGTV design show first, God bless you. Keep strong. Um, may your tribe increase. Uh, but also know you're probably not going to understand uh, any of these uh, jokes. So don't feel obligated to laugh just to protect my ego. I can handle it. <laughs> First, today on Property Brothers, our budget is $25 billion. He's a teacher. Stays at home with the kids. They found a house that has everything they want. A five-car garage, view of the mountains, 14 bedrooms. But will they turn it down for the eighth bedroom's brass doorknob? Anybody ever notice that? Like, they work with these ridiculous budgets. I'm like, How, what do you do for a living? What do these people do? Their budget is $650,000. Anyway, I have a note saved in my phone that just says, slightly more, slightly more masculine faucet, which is a phrase I heard on an HGTV program and had to immediately write it down and save it for reasons I cannot yet fully convey. <laughs> slightly more masculine faucet. <laughs> Love it. Thanks to HGTV, my wife is going to be pretty disappointed if the person I hire for home renovations isn't also super attractive. (laughs) Watched HGTV for one hour and already started knocking out my living room wall to open up the space. Anybody else do that? You start looking at your house and you're ready to like dig into it? No. Good. Yeah, Dale. Good for you. Some guy on HGTV just said, I want this to be my man cave. And his wife said, there's no my in our. He said, okay, I want this to be our man cave, which is the most progressive and nuanced commentary on gender that this station has ever aired. Oh, I thought about that one for way too long. It's really fun. Some HDTV house hunting shows said that the family wanted a kitchen that you can eat in. It's like, Carol, what's up? That's the bare minimum? Dream bigger. Ah, uh, And these two I included... Uh, Partially because they're funny, but also because it's a confession, because I've actually done this. I used to hate watching HGTV, but now I'm like, oh, why would Diane and Dave pick the checkerboard house over the Goldilocks one? You know you've done it. You know you've gotten sucked in. and Yeah. And then if you've seen one Property Brothers where Canadians want an open concept space, a quartz island in the kitchen, and also have it in the neighborhood their husband grew up in, you've seen them all. But I'm going to keep watching every episode just to be sure. Yeah, done that. And this one's for my wife. If I'm ever on HGTV when the designer asks what I want in my home, I want it to, I'll say, I want it to be easy to clean. Designer says, but what colors do you want? Easy to clean. Yeah. And the next one is because I've uh, actually got a couple kids that are each looking at buying their first house. So I thought this would be good for them. People on HGTV. I'm 24 with a budget of $875,000. I'm looking for an open concept, mid-century modern home. Me. I'm 28 with a $25 budget looking for a place to drink. (laughs) So this is week two of Fixer Upper. We're uh, studying the book of Nehemiah. Basically like it's a giant 
design show remodel project. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and this man named Nehemiah sees Jerusalem as a fixer-upper and dives into this project of rebuilding the city. And frankly, the way Nehemiah does it is weirdly similar to watching a design show because he takes this city that's been destroyed for 170, 180 years or so, and he turns it around in like a single 20-minute episode. Actually, it took a little longer than that, but not much. Nehemiah flipped Jerusalem in 52 days after the walls had been down for over 170-plus years. So along come the property brothers, and they get it done in 30 minutes with commercials. Well, last week we talked about the moment where Nehemiah receives the news that Jerusalem's a wreck. He allows his heart to be broken. Even though this wasn't a new problem, and really the problem didn't even touch Nehemiah's life, he had a fairly comfortable job in the palace, but still Nehemiah stopped for a second to lament the brokenness of his people. After mourning the news in Jerusalem, uh, that Jerusalem still lay sacked, Nehemiah began to pray. He reminded God and mostly himself how amazing God was and what God had done in the past. And then he confessed his own part in the brokenness, even though the problem began long before he was even born. He still owned his part, but not only that, Nehemiah vowed to do better, and he began to pray for an action step. Nehemiah began to pray that God would open a door for him, which leads us to today's text. So join with me as we read in Nehemiah 2. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the twelfth reign of Artaxerxes, the twelfth year of, Ar- of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before been appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are, or where my ancestors are buried, is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with his with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When when will you return? After I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the provinces west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make the beams for the, great, for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls and for my house a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. This is the word of the Lord. So I told you last week um, at the end of the message that we're going to go through a lot of stuff in this remodel project, uh, but all of it hinges on that first chapter. All of it hinges on chapter one. Nothing that happens in this book is independent of the lament and prayer that takes place first. In fact, one of the funniest parts of this book is these little mini prayers that Nehemiah prays um, over and over again, because this is his memoir. I don't think Nehemiah knew he was writing scripture. This is kind of his journal. And so in the midst of uh, telling what he had done, he would pray something like, remember, oh God, all that I have done for these people and bless me. He prays that little prayer over and over again, which is kind of funny because he's 
he's kind of making sure that he's cashing in with God and that God is seeing all the things that God is obviously seeing. But, uh, but it also kind of tells you how much the Lord is on Nehemiah's mind through this process because he's constantly um, kind of bouncing back to God through prayer. Uh, but the place I want to start is not really how much, how much Nehemiah prays, but this first prayer. At the very end of chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed this, Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. One of the hardest things, I preach it quite often, we talk about this a lot, usually during Advent, but one of the hardest things in this book is, is this concept. Last week, we kind of broke down Nehemiah's prayer. We talked about how at the end he had an action step. He was ready to go. He was ready to do something. And he prayed that God would help him to do something. He didn't just pray that God would fix everything. Nehemiah prayed that God would help him to fix everything. Nehemiah turned his prayer into action. He was ready to do something. And then what Nehemiah did was wait. He waited, which is the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. Notice the words of uh, at the very beginning of chapter 1, he says, These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in autumn, the month of Kislev. And then he begins chapter 2 with, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan. So, Nehemiah gets this news about Jerusalem in the month of Kislev, and his conversation with Artaxerxes isn't until the month of Nisan. So in case you aren't completely up to date on your um, ancient Jewish calendar, um, it goes like this, Kislev, then Tevet, then Shavat, then Adar, and then Nisan. The old, you know, rhyme goes, 30 days has Shavat, Adar, Nisan. No, I'm kidding. There's nothing like, I don't know any, I'm not that big of a nerd. I don't know like rhymes to remember the Jewish calendar. But here's the thing to consider. News comes to Nehemiah, it devastated him, rocked him. He's ruined. He fasts, he mourns, he confesses, he repents, and he waits. If Nehemiah got the news at the end of Kislev and talked to Artaxerxes at the beginning of Nisan, that's still 90 days that he just waited. But if it's the other way, if it's the beginning of Kislev, end of Nisan, that's like 150 days that he waited. Somewhere between three and five months after this, like, this huge brokenness that he felt when he found out his people were devastated and the, t- and the city was torn apart, he still waited. I haven't really been titling my messages separate from the series, but if I were going to, I'd probably title this message something like Pulling Permits, or maybe Preliminary Word. Basically, this is the part of the the 20-minute design show never shows, and it's usually the toughest and most frustrating part of the project. It's doing estimates, negotiating prices, presenting plans for approval, getting engineer stamps, going to the code jurisdiction to pull permits. It takes forever, and it's exhausting. It's a big game of hurry up and wait. Usually by the time you're ready to do a project, you're ready to hire somebody, you are ready to go. Like, I want, to, I want this thing done. I've been waiting. I'm finally ready. And you hire somebody, and you have to wait and wait and wait. Just to put it in perspective, Nehemiah made it, waited somewhere between 90 and 150 days to start this project, and he gets it done in 52 days. So he spends three times as long waiting as he does actually working. Which brings me to my first point. Change is slow until it isn't. Change is slow until it isn't. I remember reading this book by Leonard Sweet in the 90s where he talks about the difference between change and transformation. And he uses the example of of motion picture. 
where what movies really are is, is still pictures flip by so fast you can't see them. So if, you, if you're looking at one frame per second, or one frame per second and you speed it up by one frame per second, now you're looking at two frames per second, it doesn't look that much different. Three frames per second, it doesn't look that much different. Each one you're changing, you're affecting the speed, you're changing it. And if you get every couple minutes, you speed it up one frame per second, nothing really changes until there's this magical one frame per second where the human eye can no longer pick out the individual frames. And suddenly, it looks like a movie. It's still only a one frame per second change. It's really the exact same change that's been happening each step of the way. But something is different about that change. That change is suddenly transformation. We don't call it frames anymore. We call it movie. We call it motion picture. We call it, you can't see that it's individual pictures anymore. And actually, what's interesting is if you keep speeding it up one frame per second after that, it doesn't look any different. It's just, it gets a little clearer and a little nicer, but it still just looks like a movie. There's something about that one, one frame per second change that is different. Most of the moments we really hang on to, the ones we really gravitate toward and hang around to, are transformation moments. They're the big moment, the big one frame per second. We hang on to the dramatic stuff. Most of our Bible stories are the big seconds, the big dramatic things. But I believe most of the real work happens in those thousands of tiny changes that go unnoticed. One of the most intriguing miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels to me is when he healed the woman with the issue of blood. It's intriguing partially because Jesus has just promised a guy. uh, One account says that the guy's daughter was dead. The other account says she was sick when the guy came and it was on the way to her that somebody announced she was dead. But this guy comes and says, my daughter is very ill. Will you come? And it's urgent. It's immediate. And Jesus jumps up immediately. He's like, let's go. We got this. And then someone touches him. And he stops in the middle of this urgency and goes, whoa, 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 what just happened? So that always freaks me out. Like, how can you be in this crazy sprint urgency moment and, and stop and have the, the wherewithal to stop? So that's intriguing. Second thing is he, he stops and goes, I felt healing power flow out of me. I have no idea what that means. And I'm dying to know. Like, that's one of those things that, one of those phrases I would love to understand better. I felt healing power flow out of me. What does that feel like? That would be cool. But what I love for today's purpose is the fact that the, the longest account we have of this woman's exchange with Jesus is nine verses. Mark gives us the, the most, the clearest account. It's nine verses. Uh, Luke and Matthew give us shorter accounts. And we love it because it's a big, dramatic, immediate healing, right? She touches his, the hem of his garment and she's healed. Boom. Immediately. But Mark also includes this little detail that she had been sick with this for 13 years. 13 years. She says she's seen doctors spent all of her money and only gotten worse. We hear nothing about the changes this might have wrought in her heart. Nothing about what this might have done in her. We know that she, it says she suffered, uses the word suffered, many things at the hands of doctors. Which when you think first century, that I can't even dream of what they were coming up with to try. And it makes me suffer to think about it. First century rabbis trying to help a woman with an issue of blood. She suffered many things at their hands. We know that in a Jewish culture, a woman um, with an issue of blood, a woman on her menstrual cycle, is considered unclean. We know that. Uh, 
which means most women spent one week a month kind of separate and resting, which is kind of nice a little bit. You get, you get the week off. That's kind of cool. It's kind of a bummer they use the word unclean. Like, you get a week off, you're unclean. But um, we also know that uh, in the Jewish um, context, if something was unclean and it touched something clean, the unclean made the clean thing unclean. Like, so it was like coronavirus. If you got it, you pass it. Like, the unclean thing made the clean thing unclean. And uh, this created all kinds of rules about who could touch whom. There was actually, in the Talmud, so not in the actual scripture, in the rabbinical commentary on the scripture, in the, which is called the Talmud. In the Talmud, if a woman touched her husband when she was on her menstrual cycle and, uh, and didn't tell her that she would tell him that she was on a menstrual cycle and she made him unclean without him knowing it, he could divorce her. Like, for, for touching his arm while she was unclean. Like, it's, it was a big deal. Some, some uh, sources say that if a stranger, if you're walking in the market and a woman touches you and you find out that she was unclean when she did it, she can be exiled or even killed. Like, this was a serious thing in this culture. So wh- where did this woman have to be pushed that she was desperate enough to find Jesus and, and risk exile, maybe death, to go if I could just touch this rabbi's cloak? How much happened in the 13 years we don't get to hear about? We draw to the immediate. Boom. Big miracle. Really cool. It was a transformation moment. We don't get to see how much change happened before the transformation that that put a person in a place where they're willing to go, I will reach out and get Jesus no matter what. Change is really slow until it isn't. Back in Nehemiah, Jerusalem is lying in ruins for 170 years. Nehemiah is heartbroken. He prays and he waits for three to five months. Sometimes it feels like things will just never change until they do. And the absolute beautiful thing about serving Jesus, it's frustrating sometimes, but I love it, is that there's always hope. There's always hope. I believe with all my heart that instantaneous miracles happen all the time. I think our God is a God who changes things with the snap of a finger. But I also believe that those instantaneous miracles usually happen after God is done doing the work in the heart that he wants to do. And that's usually the real miracle, is the, is the, the, the slow, incremental changes God is doing. God is not a vending machine. We can't throw a prayer in the top and get the miracle out the slot in the bottom. He's working on our hearts all the time. Every single moment serving God is pregnant with amazing, miraculous potential. Because God makes a habit of changing everything in the blink of an eye. So our job is, when it feels like that's not happening, to be faithful and to wait. Like Nehemiah did, wait for God to move. Because he does. Nehemiah, after waiting four months, finally has this exchange with the king. And man, everything turns on a dime. So after waiting, after 180 years of nothing in Jerusalem, after Nehemiah feeling broken and then having to wait for his moment feels like things are sitting, like nothing is happening, suddenly everything changes. Turns on a dime. Incidentally, I love the transition between chapters 1 and 2 because Nehemiah's journal 
it kind of looks a lot like my journal, you know, where you have an entry, and then four months later you have the next entry. Is anybody else journal like me and Nehemiah? Yeah, where almost every one of my journal entries starts with, been a long time, I need to get better at this. Like, <laughs> almost every one. Um, we dove into this study because our world right now is a total fixer-upper. Everything's in bad shape. Our walls are down. Our people are defeated, and we need to rebuild. So we're studying Nehemiah to pick up tips from kind of this master flipper on how we might rebuild our nation and our church and our families and our hearts. So the real thing I want to talk about this morning is this exchange between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes. Anybody make anybody nervous when I talk for a really long time? And then I go, but the real thing I want to talk about, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes I have, in fact, I saw this week, I thought it would be fun, if ever the church like really needs money, someone said, here's what you do, you write three sermons, and you come in and go, for $250 a piece, you get the 20-minute sermon. For $100 a piece, you get the 40-minute model. And if it's like for 10 bucks a piece, you're getting a whole hour and 15 minutes. So, might be a good fundraiser. We'll look into that later. Anyway, Artaxerxes is this weird player in this drama because once we get to Jerusalem, we're going to forget he exists. This is a very Jewish story. It happens in the heart of the Jewish world in Jerusalem. So it would be really easy to kind of leave this chapter and forget all about Artaxerxes. Except nothing in this book can happen without him. This conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes is what everything hinges on. Nehemiah gets permission to do it. This is a colony of Babylon after way. I mean, they wouldn't have called it a colony back then. It would have been like a providence, I think, or a region. But this is basically a colony of Babylon. This is a Babylonian uh, city. Babylon owns Jerusalem, owns Israel right now. So this is the king's land. So he has to get permission from the king. He has to get letters so that he can travel freely. Um, he has to get permission to use the king's resources from the forest. And he's got to get off his job. Nehemiah was a, was a cupbearer. Back in that ancient world, that meant basically two things. Number one, you had to provide the king's cup whenever he asked for it. So you're basically kind of like a glorified coffee table. That's your job. Is just hand it over. But number two, the important one was you had to make sure the wine wasn't poisoned. So either you tasted it or you had a taster, but you had to make sure all the wine wasn't poisoned. That was kind of important. So it's a, it's a really uh, important position that requires a lot of trust from the king. He couldn't just assign anybody to be his cupbearer. So it's kind of a big deal that Nehemiah is asking for this prolonged vacation um, as the king's cupbearer. And, and don't like mix this up and feel like Nehemiah and Artaxerxes were buddies in any way and that Nehemiah had this kind of like important position that he could, that he could leverage because he says in the, in the very first thing, he says, when, he, when Artaxerxes asked, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Nehemiah said, I was terrified. You know, for the king to notice that you're sad in his presence, that wasn't allowed back then. You weren't allowed to be sad in the king's presence. And, and Nehemiah is rightfully terrified. So they're not like buddies, and Nehemiah can just ask for whatever he wants. The second Artaxerxes notices that he's sad, Nehemiah was terrified. It says, so Nehemiah was was mourning, he was praying, he was waiting. He decided that this was the day to let the king know that something was up, that he was sad. He said in verse 1, I had never been sad in the king's presence before. So this day, either Nehemiah couldn't hold it in any longer, or he was like calculating that this is the moment I let the king know something's wrong. And the king catches it. So Nehemiah asked, 
permission to leave his job, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He asked for the authority to travel freely. Let me have papers addressed to the governors of all the regions so I can travel through their land. Then he asked for the resources. Give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the forester. And this is something I, uh, I struggle with. Um, because I struggle with it in my own life. I'm a, I'm a good carpenter. I do good work. I do safe work. I oftentimes do more than the code requires because I want it to be done right. And the part I do not like about my job is having to go to classes to keep my contractor's license up, having to take my plans to get them approved by somebody else, having to have an inspector come and nitpick my, nitpick my work so that he can kind of justify his paycheck. I, in other words, what I hate about being a contractor is dealing with Artaxerxes. That's the part that I hate. I hate that I have to deal with the city, with the, with the government. I have a tendency to feel the same way about the church sometimes and our dealings with politics. I hate how political the church has become. For myself, I, I'm fully convinced that Jesus would never in a million years fit into a political party in America. If he showed up, I think he would. there were some passions on Jesus' heart. Uh, that, that I think there's some passions on both sides of the aisle that were close to Jesus' heart. And I can't imagine him compromising those so that he could fit in on one. I think he would come and he'd say, I don't, I don't fit in either camp. And we'd be like, yeah, but you said this one thing, and we take that really seriously. We don't budge on that. We're serious about that. And he would say, yeah, but I don't fit in either camp. I'm not going to compromise the things I believe in so that I can fit in one camp. The end. And I think the early church kind of embraced this quite a bit. The early church was very politically subversive. They, they, uh, the phrase Jesus is Lord, you know, that we, we hear quite a bit, we use quite a bit, was not a spontaneous declaration of worship. Caesar is Lord was a phrase that had been around since about 50 BC when Julius Caesar became the first emperor. Um, so 80 years to 100 years before Christians started using it, it was commonly used in the Roman Empire to say Caesar is Lord. It was part of what they called the, um, the imperial cult where you kind of worshipped the emperor as a deity. It showed up in money on about 50 B.C., so it was probably around a ways before that. And so when the Christians started saying Jesus is Lord, it wasn't a worshipful saying. It was a subversive political saying. It would be like us walking around going, Jesus is my president. Like it would be like us picking a, a very common, you know, um, a very common you know, statement that everybody would have understood and, uh, and by the time the Christians started using it, in most places in the Roman Empire, you couldn't buy or sell anything in the open market unless you declared Caesar as Lord. It was kind of a, it was kind of a, a way that they knew you were a loyal Roman citizen or a loyal you know, Roman subject, is that you would say Caesar is Lord and they would let you into the market. And so Christians used this statement, Jesus is Lord, and not just you know, talking about Jesus, they did it knowing they were, they were kind of giving up the benefits of the earthly kingdom to cling purely to the heavenly kingdom. And going, no, we understand we can't buy in the market. We can't sell our products in the market. We're willing to, to, to give up that privilege to be politically subversive, to say, I will not be a part of this. I will not say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is my Lord. It was a very political thing to do. And part of me resonates with that. Part of me likes the idea of saying, let's just be the church. Let's just shut out the outside political chatter and just focus on a strong church. Love our people, care for our people. Put up our walls and be like a beautiful Jerusalem, a walled city that shuts out 
everything else. We can still minister to people, but let's just close ourselves in. Some denominations have done that. Then we can stop dividing over what's going on in Washington. And if we were able to do that, it would be like reading this book with no chapter 2. It would be like trying to rebuild Jerusalem with no Artaxerxes. Because even though the early church was disengaged from politics, the past 1,700 years has told a very different story. The church has been so entwined with government that it's hard to know where one starts and one ends. There's been times where I'm 100% sure the church has saved society. And other times I'm pretty sure the secular government saved the church. Because God used it to do so. That relationship feels gross, but it's not new. It's what the church has been. And it's what we see here in Nehemiah too. We see this funny relationship between this work God is doing and this, this secular king. The bizarre relationship between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes in this book is probably closer to the tension we have between church and state right now than any other relationship we see in Scripture. Once we leave this chapter, Nehemiah is going to go back to being deeply Jewish. Once the wall is up, they reinstate temple worship. They celebrate the Jewish festivals again. They read the entire Torah to the assembly. They reinstitute priests and Levites. They rebuke people for not celebrating Sabbath properly. And the book of Ezra, which is tied to this book, happened at the same time. Any, Any Jew who had married a Babylonian wife had to divorce her. Like they, they go back to strict Jew. In short, they try very, very hard to make sure their people have zero Babylon in them at all. Which makes it very easy to forget that Judah at this time sits very firmly in the Babylonian Empire. They're all technically Babylonians. They wouldn't have really thought of it that way, but they are. None of those freedoms that they had to be Jewish, existed without the blessing of Artaxerxes. So it can be easy to get stuck in the tension between, am I a Babylonian or am I a Jew? Is this the work of Artaxerxes or, or the work of Nehemiah? And we fight it. Am I a Christian or am I an American? I think Nehemiah helps us a little bit with this tension at the very end of today's passage. He says, And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah knows that although he serves at the pleasure of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes serves at the pleasure of God. Nehemiah knows that Artaxerxes is only a tool. And ultimately, it's God that rules. So how do we respond to this? I'm sure if you've been here long, you've heard me say this phrase, how do we respond to this? Honestly, I don't think, I don't talk about it much, but this isn't just a catchphrase to end our sermon. I, I feel very deeply about this question. I think too often we read the scripture and we just go, oh, that was cool. So we shut it. That was a good reading today. And we don't go, what's my part? What, how do I respond to this? What, what is God asking of me from this piece of scripture today? What does God want? I don't think this is the living Word of God, the living, breathing Word of God. I don't think we should ever encounter the living, breathing Word of God without saying, how do I respond to this? So how do we respond to this? 
This morning's sermon basically comes in two parts. We have the preliminary stuff about Nehemiah waiting four months or more for the right moment. Then we have this strange and complicated relationship between the Jew and the Babylonian, between the ruler and the subject, between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. And I think the response to both is the same. As we're discussing this desperate need to rebuild our nation and our families and we're confronted every day with the news and with social media and we sit in this era of history that is absolutely overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. I believe the only way to respond to this message is to trust in the sovereignty of God. Listen, if if we're going to rebuild a broken nation and rebuild the brokenness in our churches and rebuild our families or even our own hearts, and we feel in our guts that it's on our shoulders to do the right thing and and to to make sure we hold up all this stuff and, and to do the work, we will be crushed. God is in control. If we don't trust God, if, if, I'm not saying we can just sit back and do nothing, obviously. You can't just sit back and go, well, God's going to handle it. Don't fear, just God's going to handle it. God will call on you, trust me. He'll call on you to work, and he will work you hard. But there's a huge difference between working with God and working on your own. We're facing a pandemic, we're facing riots, we're facing just completely disheartening statistics about young people in our country. We have elections in a few months. It'd be really easy to get discouraged. And people have really strong feelings about all of this. And we're in America. We're supposed to be the government. So it's, I'm not saying don't get involved. Absolutely, get involved. But listen, politically speaking, I doubt Nehemiah agreed with Artaxerxes on anything. I doubt they had a single platform point that matched. Artaxerxes is technically the bad guy. He's the person who's like the overlord of of Jerusalem, of Israel. But Nehemiah didn't get discouraged because in Nehemiah's mind, it had nothing to do with Artaxerxes. In chapter 1, Nehemiah prays that God would work on the king. He didn't pray that God would get rid of the king and replace him with a king that was sympathetic to Nehemiah. He said, start working on the king now. And when the king agrees, Nehemiah doesn't say, Artaxerxes is really a good guy at heart. To Nehemiah, God is sovereign. And if God wants Jerusalem rebuilt, God's going to rebuild it. He'll open the door. Nehemiah waits three to five months to approach the king looking sad. And waiting can drive you mad. It can make you crazy. Especially if you don't trust in the sovereignty of God. When you have to wait and you don't have deep in your guts that God is in control and God is big, waiting can make you crazy. Only way you can wait well is if you have a grasp on the sovereignty of God. If God has not answered, He has not abandoned you. He is working He is preparing. He's doing some deep work somewhere. And change is slow until it isn't. When the moment is just right, God crashes in. And it suddenly feels instantaneous. If we're anxious about our nation and the leadership at every level, please, please, please remember that whoever sits on the earthly throne 
they still answer to God. Getting in, you know, we can get involved, we can get frustrated, we can be ready to work the moment God sends us, but we can't fear. We need to respond to this message today by chilling out a little. Breathe. Our world is right now is being driven by fear and anxiety. We are out of control. And I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and ignore all wisdom, but I wholeheartedly believe there are forces at work in our world that are leveraging our fear against us. We're being driven by it. On every level. I mean, right now we've got the big ones in the news, but it, it's the way we raise our kids. It's the things we eat. It's the... It's, the, it's everything. We're so afraid of getting it wrong. And, and there are forces using that anxiety to, to drive us. We have to refuse to be led away from the sovereignty of God. See, here's the thing. If you read much about Paul's life, or really any great believers from the past and... and who truly believed in the sovereignty of God, you know that believing in the sovereignty of God is not ensure a smooth road. It never does. When we read about Nehemiah, we're going to find that the rest of this book is not smooth sailing. But I would rather be in a boat, in a tumultuous sea with Jesus than safely on the shore without it. Because I know at least in the boat, Jesus can, can still it with a word. I'd rather be in the middle of chaos knowing I'm in God's hands than feel like I'm I'm holding things together with the sheer force of my worrying. So here's what I want to do this morning. And I don't often do this, but I want to pray um, this morning specifically for people who struggle to embrace the sovereignty of God, who maybe struggle to let go and let God sit on the throne. If you know and you're willing to admit that right now you're, you're being driven by fear a little bit, you're being motivated by fear, and, and you don't want to live like that anymore, I want to pray for you specifically today. And remember, I'm not talking about ignoring wisdom. I'm definitely not talking about the, the current pandemic. I'm not saying ignore everything and just go. No, I'm not. We still want to use wisdom. I'm talking about that internal fear that, that everything is out of control and nobody's steering the bus. That, that fear that, that, man, if I don't get it just right, things might fall apart. If you're struggling with that kind of fear, I just want to pray with you. And here's the thing, if, if you're fine living in, in that kind of anxiety, then I'm fine with it. I'm not picking on anyone. Not calling you out, but if you feel like you're holding the world together with the strength of your anxiety alone, and if you drop your guard for a second and rest in the sovereignty of God, it might all come tumbling down. You shouldn't have to live like that. You shouldn't. You weren't made to bear that weight. I personally feel that living like that is hell. And if you don't want to do it anymore, then, then I want to pray for you. So here's what I want to do. If you feel like you need prayer in this area, I just want you to, like, when I'm ready to pray, don't do it now because i got a few more things to say. Just stretch out your hands and be ready to receive from God. If you're kind of shy, you can kind of do this. If you're like, I don't want to do it. You can do this. I'm fine with that. 
Same thing at home. Stretch out your hands. If you feel like this kind of crippling characteristic of our era, this is something about our era, about where we are right now. We're just being driven by anxiety and fear. And if you want to be set free from that, we want to pray for you today. And if you're here today and, and you feel pretty comfortable in the sovereignty of God, you feel like you're resting in the sovereignty of God, you're not off the hook. Your, your church family needs you to pray for them. So your job right now is to pray with me as I pray for them. Next week, maybe they'll have to pray for you. But I need you to lend your strength to those in need. So if you need prayer, if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with anxiety and 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 you know in your guts, I just don't turn it over to the sovereignty of God. I just don't. I, I'm, I'm too nervous. I have to, I have to hang on to it. And, and if you don't want to live like that anymore, just, I want you to stretch your hands out right now and, 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 and pray with me. And if, if, if you feel strong in this, I need you to join me and, and pray for your church family. Lord Jesus, help us to know that you are on the throne. Help us to know that even as we engage our politics in this, in this land, we have an election coming. Even as we engage that, ultimately you are on the throne. You're the one in control. And none of this that we're dealing with is new to you. None of this that we're dealing with in our personal lives is new to you. You've done it before. None of this we're dealing with in our churches is new to you. You've done this before. None of this we're dealing with in our nation is new to you. You've done this before. Oftentimes we haven't. Why would we hang on to it? So right now, God, I pray that you'd help us release. Help us let go. Help us trust that you're in the boat and the storm bows to you. There's so many things right now, God, that are pushing against us that, are, that feel like weights we're supposed to carry. They feel important. They feel like things we're supposed to pick up. They feel like they're our responsibility. And, and we can try to shoulder them, God, but it gets so heavy. And you said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is light and my burden is easy. So God, for everybody who needs to let go, Holy Spirit, only you can do this work. Go into our hearts and give us peace. And I I pray in, in some weird way you would allow us to envision these stresses as as baggages, as suitcases. And every time we feel it, we we can physically hand you that suitcase. It's too heavy for me to carry. Give us some way to some some prayerful way to hand that over to you. Because we can't carry it. We can't help but engage this world, God. We can't help but engage the chaos. Our kids are in schools that are messed up. Our, our, our world is rioting. Our, our government is tearing itself apart. Like, and we sit in the middle of this. We're, we're Americans. We can't help but sit in the middle of it. 
As we're trying to put up our own walls in the middle of all this, we have to engage it. But don't let us carry the load. We, we have to trust in you. So God, right now as we pray, take the load. Let us, let us walk out of here feeling physically lighter. Because we know, like you said, who can add one inch to his height by worrying? Who can make one piece of all this trouble better by stressing about it, by worrying about it? So God, as the world tries to load us back up, as we put it down this morning and the load tries to, world tries to load us back up, don't let, it, don't, let it, don't let us pick it up. Convict us not to pick it up. Speak to us clearly. That's not yours. Put that down. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.